Hello, everyone. Welcome. Welcome to part one of Addressing Digital Equity and Teacher Preparation. This is our webinar hosted by ISTE's Digital Equity Network. Today, we have our returning panelists joining us. Um, we have Abby, Abby Futrell, Bettina Shea, Laura Kassab, Raina Leon, Marisol Rexach, Sarah Thomas, and myself, Nicole Howard. Um, on our last webinar, we focused on several different questions around the topic of digital equity and then focused on that topic as well. And so tonight we want to dive a bit deeper into those questions. And we'd also like to um, discuss our own definition of digital equity as well, just to kind of operationalize and center the conversation. Um, if you're live tweeting, we want to remind you to tag at DigEquityPLN or use the hashtag IsTDEPLN. Um, before each of our panelists either ask a question or respond to a question, they will introduce themselves. So let's go ahead and, and begin. All right, great. Hi, name is, my name is Marisol and um, happy to uh, work adjunct at Redlands University, also Director of Professional Learning in Santa Ana Unified School District. Really, really happy to be meeting with these amazing ladies that you'll get to know more so in a bit. But let's get started. Um, the first question, which is likely not as simple as it sounds. How do each of you just basically define this thing called digital equity? Uh, this is Lara Kassab. I'm at San Jose State University. I'm an assistant professor in teacher education. Um, in digital equity, uh, I kind of see it as a two-pronged um, thing. Uh, one one prong is how much access our teacher candidates have in schools to the actual technology to be able to utilize um, technology with their students, uh, as well as permissions to be able to use various technologies with students and how there is definite inequity between school sites and school districts quite frequently falling along socioeconomic grounds. Um, and the second prong is access to, for our teacher candidates, access to being able to learn about, uh, basing on, on different programs, have different levels, teacher, different teacher education programs have differing levels of technological pedagogical expertise and coursework and embedded integrated coursework to help candidates uh, learn how to use technology in their future careers. Thanks for that. Anybody else want to weigh in? Sure. I am Bettina Shea, and I'm an associate professor and teacher ed at Cal State Long Beach. And just kind of building off some of the ideas that uh, Lara was talking about, I think not even, I mean, I agree with everything she said. And I also think that within schools or programs, I'm trying not to get the sun straight in my face as I'm talking to you all. Um, <laughs> within schools and programs, I think there are definite, definite digital equity issues. Um, I'm in a large program. So Cal State Long Beach has one of the longest, largest teacher credentialing programs in the state. And I think when we think about large programs or large schools or large districts, there's even equity issues within a certain program, right? So if you have a professor who actually is um, competent with various technology tools, interested in using them, um, integrating them as a regular part of their practice and modeling that, um, you'll have a different level of access, right? As a teacher candidate, but also as a student, right? If you have a teacher that um, has gone through professional development, is part of networks, you have a different level of access to digital tools um, than some then some other students or other teacher candidates within your same program or your same school site that um, might not have that particular teacher or professor. So if it's not really integrated and cohesive across a program or across a school site, um, that's also an, a digital equity issue. And I want to add to what's already been brought up around the um, capacity building with um, teachers as well as teacher candidates um, within their sites as as well as um, in their teacher credentialing programs to think about um, digital equity. Hi, y'all. My name is Raina. <laughs> Raina Leon. I'm an associate professor at college, and right now I am not there. I am on leave because I just had a lovely, beautiful, amazing um, baby. So. <laughs> But I'm still um, in this, and I think that it is important to mention our dynamic um, um, qualities, right? So 
Um, one thing that I'm thinking about too is how to make sure that our um, the teachers that we prepare do not become gatekeepers um, to accessing technology within their classes classrooms as well. So it's one thing to um, build the capacity. Hopefully, you're in a program where you have a professor who has that aptitude, right, to help you to understand um, how to use technological tools, both as a student but also as a teacher, right. And then you go to your site and hopefully um, they have the capacity there, whether it's network or in hardware stuff um, to any uh, tools. And now you have to think about how to transfer that knowledge to your young people be and get beyond the idea that, oh, all, all young people, all, all youth, they understand naturally how to, how to use technology, right? And, and, um, and and thinking about like how to get beyond um, or how to how to not be a gatekeeper to accessing that technology, um, sometimes even because, well, that's not the way that I did it myself in the past. Right. Um, and I know the better way because I was a student and this is how um, I learned best back then, rather than thinking about there are multiple ways to learn, multiple ways to um, access information and produce and and. Um, demonstrate one's knowledge and build one's knowledge. How do I help my young people, my youth, um, to to do that? How do I how do I work in partnership with them in learning and and discovering? So yeah, so some things around digital equity that that I'm thinking about. I just um, noticed something that um, Desiree um, on on YouTube Live said something about defining it not as worrying about making sure every school gets the same thing. Uh, so not equality, right? But that every school gets what they need dealing with technology and digital access. And I have some, a few thoughts about that. Um, I guess when we start taking a look at schools and their current state in terms of equity and equality, we often go for that equality issue, right? Just to make sure that the playing field is fair. Um, but I, this idea of getting what they need, I wonder how to define that. How do you define um, the needs that schools have when it comes to that, you know, I'm, I'm curious about if anybody has a, thoughts. Well, one of the things that um, crossed my mind in both what you said and after reading Desiree's comment, um, which I think is right on, we definitely need to be thinking about equity in schools, but even beyond equity for schools, looking at equity for students. And this is, I think, where digital equity starts to cross over into also considerations of UDL. Um, if you have a student who is using an assistive technology device, how do we create an environment in which there's equitable access for them, but it's universally designed so that the can so that the student doesn't feel kind of pointed out or drawn out by using their assistive technology, so that we have enough enough technology for everyone in the room to use if they should so desire to do so. Hi, this is Abby Futrell. I'm the new assistant superintendent of Edgecombe County Public Schools. I kind of have a different lens. Um, for example, in my district, we have some schools. And then my previous work with Friday Institute, I've been in schools that have been completely taken out and certainly do not take advantage of the resources that they have. We do have limited resources in Edgecombe County, and I have seen some of our digital learning teachers do some amazing things with minimal resources. So I do like Desiree's point that it's not so much about the stuff, although I, I do believe like we, we do need to make sure that students have equitable resources in terms of, you know, quote unquote stuff, but looking at the access and, and opportunities that exist. Just to give an example, like in, I've been in some schools before I came to Edgecombe, since I was able to service a lot of schools where, you know, you had um, digital activities and resources in the media center if you finished your work first. So if you look at the population of kids who were quote unquote finishing their work first, is that equitable access for our students? So, you know, just kind of looking at those aspects um, is what I think about. And when Desiree made that comment, uh, it brought that to mind. I think the thing that I would add, if I look at digital equity in terms of the teacher preparation, I start thinking about um, a first year student at a university or college. And sometimes we expect them to come in already Number one, having tech, personal technology and devices, right? Number two, already knowing how to use those devices. 
And in some cases, I think some of our freshmen students, students just coming in, might not have had that. So if, if there are expectations for our soon-to-be teachers, right, when they start their education at the university level, then how do we support our expectations for those who might not have had that in their K-12 coursework? Um, and now here they are in this big, gigantic place, right, um, where they have to be a lot more independent. And, um, you know, everybody else around them may have a laptop or some sort of a device, know how to use, you know, Google and all, all this other stuff, and they haven't. So if we expect that, how do we support that? That's another part of it. Yeah, I think that leads really nicely into our second question, um, Marisol, where hopefully we can start to unpack some of those ideas. Um, last time we talked through ideas on how we might achieve digital equity and bridge the gap between teacher education and districts. And I know Marisol's last comment, you know, was kind of talking about how do we bridge between K-12 and higher ed, but thinking about how we build those bridges in relation to digital equity, um, what are some of our new wonderings or what observations have we made since our last conversation about um, digital equity and those bridges between the university and districts? In looking at teacher candidates, when asked about their technology uh, comfort level, experience, training, I'm finding more often than not, they've taken that one course, that one technology and education, digital learning. I just wish it was not isolated to that one course. I can't remember who said it earlier, but really thinking about how um, higher ed professors, is there modeling going on with that? Um, is it an expectation? Is it, I, I just would hate to, I would love to see it come out of that you take this one course and then we're done with the technology piece. And just, just to model for teachers how it is to be integrated with your content and your pedagogy. And like it, it, it is a package deal. It's not just a separate course. Yeah. And I would really actually love it if we could um, do more on-site teaching in some of our local districts, because I think we have and use different technology at the university than some of our partner districts use. And I think, you know, you get, I mean, part of this is also kind of developing capacity so that students aren't, or our students, our teacher candidates, aren't totally dependent on the whatever platform we're using, but understand the principles of technology so that they can switch between platforms. But I also think that, um, you know, where it's possible, it would be great if we could bridge by actually teaching in classrooms um, and using some of the, di the district technology or platforms so we don't get them all excited about something that is blocked by a firewall or that um, they don't have a software license to, or, I mean, just all of these things, because I, I think that we have enough constraints and there are so many moving parts in both types of institutions in teacher education settings and in districts that it would be great if we could actually spend some time um, working in, and teaching together. And actually also maybe if we're not on site, bringing teachers, bringing K-12 teachers, with strong practice, right? So I teach literacy courses mainly, strong practices in literacy that are also integrating technology to support their literacy-based goals. Because, um, you know, a couple of people mentioned on the, um, on the YouTube live comments, this idea of being purposeful, right? Starting with the end in mind, what do we want them to do with technology? I think Desiree was talking about that. And, you know, Fabiana was saying that many students just take tech as fun. And I think our teacher candidates see that too. And we actually need to challenge and push back against that and really bring in educators, model for ourselves how our use of technology is actually purposeful, right? And I think that will go a long way in building some of the bridges. And I, I think that, that um, Bettina, you're also pointing at a, a, a deep investment from the side of higher education in capacity building for professors and building and building their abilities, right? And then also in um, truly being in partnership, which is also an investment from the university to say to its professors, your space here is sacred and important and your, but you also need part of your, your, your growth and your commitment as teacher educators is to also be in partnership at the school site with K-12 teachers, understanding the multiplicities of, of technology in that space. And then being in a spirit of, of, of welcome, right? Creating these um, pathways from one space to another 
for K-12 teachers to come back to the university and say, be transparent about their practices, whether they are in, whether they're in uh, Star Trek <laughs> future space or, or just right here and starting out from the basics, right? Um, so there's a lot of investment of time and commitment and support that has to go back and forth with that. And I think that that has to be clear and, and um, communicated uh, within our teacher education programs as we're really building our partnerships with our K-12 schools. And just to add to that, as we begin to, and this is Nicole Howard, I don't think I mentioned, I'm from the University of Redlands Assistant Professor. So I, I'm thinking about as uh, we continue to work with our district partners to, um, we are trying to see how we can bridge those gaps and support our candidates as they prepare to become educators. At the same time, we're seeing current educators who are also dealing with digital inequities themselves. And I'm thinking about um, some of what Abby has mentioned, you know, being in a rural uh, school district, those teachers may still be struggling with connectivity issues, um, you know, things of that nature. Um, but then we also have that other layer of access to the professional learning to become prepared to teach. So is that a digital, digital inequity as well, in that they aren't receiving the support that they need to support their own students, but also to model for their student teachers effective use of technologies as well. So I think we have a layered issue here and it's a growing concern of mine is how do we support even our current educators who don't have the access um, to the tech learning that they um, should also still continue to receive as we have emerging and newer technologies that are evolving. Can I just say that because I work in a district and I work with universities, one of the things that um, I think has been a challenge. Okay, so I'm going to date myself here, but oh, I think back in nine, oh, it was a while back. And I remember computer labs. So I would walk kids to the computer lab because that's where we learned about computers. And it was this like separate entity and it wasn't integrated into content. And I remember my master's was on how to integrate computers in a one or two computer classroom, because that's all we had. How do we integrate that into the fabric of what we teach? And somebody mentioned about, you know, if core subject teachers are going to require that, then they need to teach skills. So we kind of learned that that computer lab setting wasn't what we wanted to do. Fast forward more recently to computers being all that. And we started to hear about SAMR model and all of this. And teachers were almost, I think, meant to feel ashamed if, if they couldn't jump right away to integrate technology into their content. They were struggling just to figure out how to use technology. They didn't know how to use a lot of these platforms and apps and stuff like that. So I think there's also that reality of these two Technology integration is maybe what we aspire to do seamlessly and make decisions, you know, um, but at the same time, we have, a, a, like Nicole was saying, we've got master teachers taking in student teachers, but those teachers don't even really know in some cases technology or they may know and this new teacher coming in knows it for personal uses, but not for educational purposes, right? So how do we get to a point where we allow people to learn technology, um, the nuts and bolts of it, and the pedagogical, you know, and, and I know there's a whole science of computer study that talks about this, but I saw that in our district that we really need teachers needed time just to learn how to not be afraid to type the keys and, and attempt something. Um, so anyway, that was just something that I thought about as you were talking about that, Nicole. And I know you're very knowledgeable about that because you were at the district at the time when that was really happening. Well, and I actually think that that's a good connection to our next question, Marisol. Um, on part one of the series in November of last year, we talked about encouraging educators to leverage the technology they have to, um, in order to improve learning opportunities for their students. Can you share, or anyone, can you share a time when you modeled this practice for your students? And did you witness evidence of a transfer of digital equity knowledge from your own teaching to your students' appreciation in their practice or learning? So I guess I'll jump in. Um, oh, are you going? Go ahead. Go ahead. No, no, I, go, go ahead. Go ahead. Okay. So um, one of the things I do is number one, 
I force myself to learn by integrating something that I haven't done before. Um, because if I don't, I won't learn. Um, so recently I've basically created just a, a Google slide deck for my course. And there's the first page is, you know, they put a picture of themselves and because I need to get to know them. And the next is a table of contents. So every single assignment they do, they hyperlink it on that table of contents and they do a digital journal. And as we do that, what I started to see is some of them actually started doing that in their own classrooms. And they started to work on doing that in, in ways that was pretty powerful. And I think one of the things for them is that sense of self-efficacy, like, wow, look, I can use computers in meaningful ways and it benefits my students. That really started to happen. So that's just one example. A great example. Thank you. Yeah, I was thinking about, um, we just, I just came back from a conference and Laura was in my session on Twitter and teacher education. And um, we were actually talking about how um, I have found it so helpful to actually model Twitter use in class, right? So I require, I've always required all my students to, my teacher candidates to, um, to uh, establish a Twitter account. Um, but I never required them to tweet and it just kind of gave opportunities for folks to tweet, but then didn't think about actually modeling it. Now in both the pre-service level and at the master's level, when I ask them to do things, we model it first in class. Um, so we'll model um, on the very first day of class, they have a partnership activity, they take a picture of that and actually tweet it in class um, so that they're actually getting to engage with um, Twitter in a kind of um, safer controlled space. And we actually did that for the first time with my master's level class um, with a Twitter chat where they had an online Twitter chat that was a, a replacement of an in-class session, but we actually did a Twitter chat in class first so that we could work out kind of all of the kinks. And I've definitely seen some of my students integrate Twitter into their own practice as they become teachers um, for a variety of reasons and similar reasons to the way that I use Twitter professionally. So some of them will use it um, to gain access to other educational resources. Others will use it to share about their professional practice and get support from colleagues. And then others will use it as a tool to disseminate some information to their students. And so it's been great actually, um, since I follow all my students and they follow me, to actually see them using it actively to share elements of their practice and also to grow as professionals. That's great. I'm gonna piggyback. Oh, There's so many great practices to share. <laughs> I know. I'm gonna piggyback off of Bettina. Um, Again, because she always says the best, the best things, but with a little different lens. I do work with teachers, of course, but once a month we have um, a full day with our principals. Now, principals with technology sometimes are hard to sell because we need principals to model so because teachers have more access to principals than they do um, to me directly or my directors or our, uh, digital learning team. So every principal meeting, I will simply just model something in a practical manner. It has not failed. I have at least one or two principals come up to me afterwards and say, how did you do that? So, for example, we just started doing um, started last month with our teacher walkthroughs, which we do on a continual basis. So we you do the teacher walkthroughs on a Google form. The Google form through Autocrat kicks the principal a folder with a separate teacher report. Right. So that was the first piece. They wanted to know how did you get all these reports and you didn't have to type up each report for the teachers. So last month I showed them we took the data from the Google form and fed it into Google data dashboard, which was able to give the principals a visual on like what areas the teachers maybe needed more help in. As soon as that was as soon as that was over, can you show us how you did? So sometimes I'll just model it, show the benefits and then just let it sit there for a minute. If you can get one or two. You can get three or four, you can get five or six. That is fantastic. <laughs> mm -hmm. Anyone else? Well, so one of the things I do is uh, I teach a classroom management course and I try to include one like technology tool type in each session. And at each session, we debrief how we as students use the tool, how we set it up. And then we talk about because even though I teach in the heart of Silicon Valley, we still have quite a few candidates who are in classrooms where 
there are four computers. So Metasol, I know because I was also in the classroom in 19, um, that, you know, we, we like to think that that's, that's then that they only had one to four class, you know, computers in a classroom or had to go to a computer lab. But a lot of my students are still facing that. So we talk about ways in which you can take the technological thinking or the technological pedagogical thinking that you use when you're using an app and deciding to use a certain app and how you can kind of put it in an analog form or the strategies for using the limitations of technology that you may or may not have in your classroom. Um, and we attempt to do that for each tool to really look at, it drills down to the pedagogy. Uh, adding to what Laura just mentioned, I do something similar and we also debrief. Um, and sometimes I'll come in and I'll try to do a very poor example of modeling the use of the tech. And then we debrief and I say, so what went wrong? What would you do differently to try to engage uh, my students and have them think a little bit more about what they would would actually do um, to be more successful? And then I give them an opportunity to step away, develop that idea, and then model effective use. And then I'm also thinking about, Laura, something that um, you mentioned recently about this idea of learning to learn. And not to put you on the spot, but I would love if you wouldn't mind talking more about that, because I think that that is a helpful uh, approach to teaching our um, pre-service candidates. So do you mind sharing a bit more about that? Sure. I don't mind at all. Um, I'm starting to think maybe I should write a paper about it. Yeah, well, I was mentioning the fact that if we look at the rate at which technology changes, that we really need to think about our candidates for the life of their careers and their K-12 students for their lives will constantly be approached with new technology, new kinds of tools. And so it's not enough for us to look at digital equity as, well, we need to make sure every student knows how to do PowerPoint or a PowerPoint type software, right? We, we, we need to go beyond that and think, how are we actually preparing our candidates? And how are we preparing them to prepare the K-12 students to have the ability to learn how to learn? how to be flexible, how to approach learning something, how to, how to do a lot of metacognition and, and, and figuring out learning strategies for things that we don't even know how to learn yet because they're not there. Um, so that's kind of the, the heart of the learning how to learn thinking. Well, and, and I, I would add that I would hope too that they're in the modeling of learning to learn and with our candidates taking that on uh, in their practice and hopefully transferring that to their students, there's also the learning to share that knowledge, right? So um, not just acquiring it and becoming experts in that one thing or the multiple things, but actually sharing and teaching one another to build uh, a depth of knowledge in these different areas too. Um, so again, uh, building in partnership and and in in co-constructing our our understandings, our knowledge together. Yeah. So a true community of practice around learning how to learn. Right? Yes. Yes. Well, and and one thing uh, going back uh, to some of the practices that we model with our students. One thing that I um, recently did with my English educator um, folks was to combine just the use of, of Google Docs and talking about um, project-based learning through the creation of a unit together. So we used the, the, the practice that the, the class was framed around is that they were creating these PBL units for their classes. But as a way of getting to that, we engaged in our own PBL around how we could create a, a collective unit, right? So we were using Google Docs and identifying a, a novel that we would be working on together. We um, broke down higher order thinking questions for each chapter together. We created handouts and literally put them on the board, arranged them, did our um, curriculum planning together, and then um, transferred that into um, our, our um, block plan um, online so that they had the physical practice of using collaborative tools to create a very um, in-depth project and could possibly, and we talked about how that might 
um, translate into their guidance of their students in um, doing something complex um, within the classroom together. So I sense we may be moving to the next question, but I seem to be the transition for questions. So it's fitting that I will uh, add this because as you guys are talking about this, I think that metacognition and how do we learn, you know, I work with new teachers and I work with soon to be teachers and then I work with those veterans, right? And I think all of us do in some ways. But one of the things that I am always stressing, and I think we all agree upon, is that teaching is a lifelong learning, a commitment for lifelong learning, right? And technology moves so quickly and so fast that if you do not embrace that concept of having to learn, right, and having to try new things, um, then, then we're all dead in the water. And I think one of the ways that I might model learning is that... For somebody my age to really be using some of the technology that I'm using and asking them to use, and a lot of them have never done some of what I've tried to do, I think that models that, look, I've been teaching for over 30 years, right? And here I am. And so it, for me, it's a commitment to push myself and to learn because I love my students and, and I love their future students. And that drives me to always be the best teacher I can be because I know that they're going to need this. So I think in some ways that that's also an undercurrent message. That was a great transition. Thank you so much. Right into question four. I love it. Um, so we've discussed at length the many barriers to achieving digital equity in our work with pre-service new and current teachers. What advice might we give to current teacher educators who are working to prepare and support teachers in their own digital equity efforts? Well, one piece of advice I would give is teach students how to use sandboxes and just let them play. Let them get back in touch with the, the questioner inside of themselves, the encouraging them to try and break things so that they get comfortable with the with what they're doing and, and learn how they themselves are learning the the tool or the technology or whatever it is that they're learning. And I'm going to build off Lara and it's going to sound like it's the opposite of what she said, but actually it's, it's very similar. Um, I, my advice would be to be purposeful in the use of technology um, and in the integration of technology. When we think about equity, something that's been on my mind a lot is that we need to be purposeful because we don't have all the time in the world with our students and we don't have you know, all the tools necessarily that we would want in our hands. So we have to think about, you know, we do want to encourage our students to break out of this like idea that they have to get it right all the time. And so when we're using sandboxes, we actually want to make sure that we're explicit about the purposes with which we're doing something, right? So it's not just I'm doing tech because tech is fun. And there's a place for fun, right? Like I'm not saying, oh, make tech boring. But what I am saying is to be explicit about the purposes, whether you're a teacher educator modeling for your teacher candidates or your new teachers um, working at that level, or whether you're working with K-12 students, help everybody to understand that we're not just using the technology because, you know, this is a replacement for a pen and paper, or this is a replacement for um, something else, but that there's real affordances that this technology gives us, or there are real like later skills. Marisol earlier was saying, you know, when you go to the post-secondary world, you're going to need to have these skills, whether you go to college or career, but being explicit with our K-12 students, like this is the reason we're teaching you word processing, or we're requiring that you have this type, or, you know, even if you don't have a printer, these are the reasons, like, these are the ways that you can share these things. These are the, these are the types of equity issues that, honestly, we do have to navigate when we get to post-secondary settings. But I think being really explicit with our candidates, being explicit with our students is so important when we're thinking about how we promote digital equity. I agree 100%. Just to add to that too, I'd say that having the purpose will further support the transfer of digital equity knowledge as well, because I know, you know, from just thinking of our, my own personal learning experience, if you do something just because you're told to do it, or you to, you're told it will, you'll have a, a nice uh, output or your end goal will be great. 
you kind of will go through the motions, but you're not really connected to what you're doing. But when you know your purpose, then you continue to, um, as you take on new things and you try new new technologies, if we're using technology as the focus, right? When you take on learning new technologies and you understand the purpose, then you either stick with that tool and you have the, the resilience as you learn it and as you apply it in your practice, or because you know your, your purpose, you look at that and you say, this is not right for this learning experience. This is not the right tool for this teaching opportunity right now. So I, I that's my the advice that's already been given, but just to you know continue to think about the goal is to transfer the knowledge from what you're practicing. And I do see the purpose as a key component to that. You mean other than just to check the box on the walkthrough that says teacher was using technology? Is that what you're referring to? <laughs> yes, you got it. <laughs> so y'all, I've, I've been thinking a lot about also the work of teacher educators as well as teachers in enacting social justice and, and that connection to technology, um, particularly in, in connection with a, a friend of mine, a, a sister of mine, her father recently passed away. And uh, one of the things that she, um, his name was Thomas Damron. And one of the things that she was talking about um, in remembering him in South Carolina was his uh, advocacy for his community in the use of technology. So when in his community, uh, um, black community with, with limited resources in the eighties and so on was, did not have as much access to computers. It was like really rare to have one in the in the home. He as a um, worked to uh, provide those resources to help people to build those those skills. He did incredible work with um, with neighboring schools as well of building their technological capacity. And when I think about that um, in connection with digital equity, I also think about the um, systemic um, problems of what not having someone think about the multiplicities of um, access that you can you can have. In that case, his community was was gifted with someone who could see and provide um, uh, an access point for for children, for youth, and for elders and for community partners. And so I think about the work of teacher educators too, of um, seeing the landscape and talking with future teachers and current teachers about here is a landscape and the future will come. And how do we help to prepare our, our um, K-12 students for that future? Part of that is technology. Part of that is developing skills. Part, there are so many parts, um, but with teacher edu educators and with teachers that we have a, a, a part to play in that as well. Yeah, and I think Raina brings up a really important point about um, our role, not just in terms of teaching, but also in terms of advocacy and the ways in which we can use digital tools to advocate um, in a variety of ways, right? Whether it's actually providing physical resources, right? Um, we're providing resources through teaching, but also providing resources through the ways in which we use um, digital technology as professionals, right? So again, it's not just modeling in the classroom. It's not just what we do when we're actually with our teacher candidates or with our students. It's actually what are we doing all the time, right? Um, because I think that's one of the things I, I'm thinking deeply about, right? In terms of, I do a lot of work on social media. And I think one of the great things about social media is it allows you to extend your classroom um, beyond the um, confines of a room, right? Beyond the confines of a single space, beyond the confines of a single semester, right? And so I've been able to really see, you know, teachers kind of extend that space out. And I've been able to advocate for things that are really important. So when we think about digital equity, like, I mean, we can't forget the equity pieces of that, right? So then how do we actually um, use our work. I know everybody on this call is um, also a real advocate and believer in social justice. And so how do we actually use our positions of power, our 2000 plus followers on Twitter, you know, whatever it is to actually um, make statements that are powerful and that advocate for these equity issues that we're talking about? Because we always enjoy these conversations and they're, they're really important conversations, but how do we make it more public? Was that a rhetorical question, by the way? <laughs> 
How do we make it more public? I mean, I thought it was a great question. I don't have the answer. With your ideas. Great question. <laughs> oh, that is a great question. Let me think that one. That's see, that's a good teacher for you. Let me think I'll get back to you. <laughs> we need to figure that out though. <laughs> well, I think I do think I'm sorry. Go ahead. Oh no, you go ahead. I was just going to say one of the things we started off by defining digital equity, and I think part of it is we talked about integrating technology and pre-service uh, coursework. So I think the universities have done a really good job. A lot of them have had to look at their teacher preparation programs and redesign them, rewrite some of the courses um, and take a look at, at this factor. And, and the question is, are we redesigning some of the coursework, the methods courses and things like that to ensure that they're preparing teachers um, I know you, you, Laura, you just talked about, you know, having a classroom management um, course and you're integrating technology in that course. So I'm wondering to what degree are the folks who are teaching these courses are actually doing that across the learning to teach uh, continuum when it comes to coursework? Absolutely. I know when I work with new teachers and we talk about the difference between um, there's classroom management and then you have to have a management system when you're using devices. So we kind of talk about those two pieces and um, you know how you can combine those together, but then there's some some separate protocols and procedures that come about when you're using devices with students. So that's a great point. Well, and we go even beyond the device management to, um, so for instance, we talk about how you can use um, student response systems to do SEL check-ins at the beginning of a day or at the beginning of a lesson and that the affordance of that is you know, I could have students do a thumbs up, thumbs down, but that's very public. So students who may be struggling with a trauma or crisis aren't going to be, you know, kind of pinging my radar because they'll put the thumbs up. Whereas if we do a, a student response system, candidates can then also get to know very well, teachers <laughs> can quickly know how their students are doing and have that avenue of um, my student can tell me a little bit more, even if they're not a very vocally productive kid, they can tell me more about what's going on with them so that I can, throughout the day, try to find ways that I can support them because of the instantaneous, you know, affordance of a response system versus the um, suggestion box or the, I have a question box that I'm, I'm sure Marisol at least, and I probably remember having a shoe box with a hole cut in top that they could put little slips of paper in <laughs> to kind of let us know how things are going. Um, but all of that requires us to really be in, in contact with the K-12 partners. So I think one of the answers to this whole thing is it's, we need to build more bridges. We need to be in deeper contact, K-12 and universities so that we share these ideas and um, like I learned the best technology from people in the field. That's what I bring into my classroom more than me coming up with it off the top of my head. So the more we can build those bridges and really honor the work of K-12 practitioners, uh, maybe co-write some things that go into K-12 journals as well as the heavy research journals. Well, and I was also thinking about this uh, piece that Laura brought up around bridges. This has come up many times in our conversation of building bridges. Um, what does that look like for uh, K-12 uh, teachers and teacher educators to teach together, right? Teach um, together pre-service candidates um, as to the different technological practices um, and not just as a one-time, maybe day-long conference kind of um, experience or um, our pre-service teachers go to a conference or to a PD session, but actually as part of a teacher education program so that there is um, more connection between the, right, I, I'm seeing um, Laura um, posting in our in our ongoing chat around technological teacher residency programs. Yes, like <laughs> um, thinking about how do we really um, connect with one another um, in uh, an ongoing way. It's funny you brought up the residency thing because I was, I was gonna talk about that, that, um, there's, so I run the teacher induction program in Santa Ana, and I'm with a lot of the universities in the area. So I think there's a really good dialogue that's happening with universities and school districts, because I know that I'm not an exception. Um, 
I think it's more the norm that a lot of those conversations are happening. But most recently, there is an RFP for uh, the, the um, teacher residencies, capacity building and, and building the program. So hopefully that will also afford us a lot of good opportunities. The, the trick about that uh, residency program opportunity, and I don't know if any of you, maybe you know a little bit more than I do, the concern as a district is it seems that the what's laid out is that after this initial experience, right, that the district is supposed to be able to give that uh, person an actual job. And so um, that's the part that, that's kind of tricky. Um, the other piece is the CTC put something else out, which was all about um, establishing this um, communication path between university and districts and, and strengthening that dialogue. So I think, I think there's a need, and I'm, I'm glad to see the CTC, I think they're developing structures that might support this work. Yes, and to add to that, uh, Marisol, um, at uh, the CCTE conference that we all, or a few of us here, um, were at this past week, they did mention that um, it's something for right now, but it is on the radar for ongoing, understanding that, you know, teacher residency programs could be beneficial for uh, the partnerships between you know the LEA, the districts, and with the, the higher ed, the institutions, because how many times have we said we want that conversation? We want that conversation to happen. We want to know what our district partners' needs are as far as their um, hiring of teachers. You know, what are they looking for? How do we prepare our candidates um, for employment? You know, they, we want them to be employable um, in addition to everything else that we want for them. But if we're not talking, that um, it's harder to prepare them properly. But I see your challenge as well, right? Like the, because the promise does have to be there with this particular call that this that applicant will then be able to um, have a position. And I think it's for a certain number of years too, if I'm correct. It's a good I start. Think, yeah, I think that one is actually the one where it's for the paraprofessionals, isn't it? That, that it's a paraprofessional pathway through and then they commit to teaching for three to five, or was it the other RFP also? It was for both. It was oh, for okay. the teacher capacity. And I think you're right for the paraprofessional one as well. Okay. Yeah, I think they're doing a lot of creative things. Uh, the paraprofessional is one that we wrote to, and then uh, this one, the RFP coming up as well. But, you know, I think um, being an adjunct, really one of the reasons that I do it is um, because I have nothing else to do. Um, you know, what the heck, might as well teach at night, <laughs> work in the day and teach at night, right? But I love it because it keeps me connected, right? It keeps me so connected to what our soon-to-be teachers are experiencing. And it also really does open up a lot of those lines of communication with universities. As I said, I'm adjunct with Redlands as one of them. And, and just having the opportunity to talk to Nicole and the other folks, I think has really um, benefited me a lot. Uh, being able to then look at my induction program for the new teachers. Um, so, and, and then I hope, I hope that I give a little insight as well into what is this first year teacher experiencing, right? So I think it's a good approach. All right. Well, right now, just wanted to hear from the panel to see if anyone had any last thoughts. So just wanted to open up the floor for any, um, any final words. We appreciate you, Sarah. That's my final word for right now. Um, while I'm thinking of another final word. <laughs> Well, thank you. Right back at you. <laughs> Absolutely. So, um, so Rana, I think you just unmuted yourself. Unless I, I did. That. I have a, have a word. Um, it may be uh, hopefully not my real final words, but my final word here. Um, so I, uh, I, one, I just appreciate everyone on the panel. Like y'all are amazing and I learned so much. Um, and just the generosity too of um, everyone in this practice and sharing what's going on uh, within their work. That is amazing. Um, the other thing that I love is that in the chat, because I, I want to make it public so that it might actually happen. In the chat, we're talking about, oh, we need to write a book. And I'm like, yes, yes, we do. And y'all who are watching, you need that book. So I'm going to say, <laughs> I'm going to put it out there so that it happens. So I'm appreciative of that conversation too. Now we now we're on the hook, guys. No backing out now. 
I agree with Raina. Um, I was going to put us on blast too about this upcoming book and also do a little plug. So anyone who enjoyed the the webinar, the podcast or the um, video cast, please stay tuned for that book coming up. Um, but also, I just want to say I um, have really appreciated being in conversation with you all. I know we don't we you know, we've done two or three conversations together as a group and or with various members of our group. And I know the ISTE Digital Equity PLN has been really great about bringing people into these spaces. And there'll be another conversation in about eight days and I'll be there too. But um, but most of y'all won't. But um, I just want to put a plug in for um, for professional networks, right? And how powerful they are. Because, you know, it's hard for me to take an hour out of my weekend um, very precious family time and personal time that I get very little of to jump on a, a webcast with folks. But they're, but I always come out feeling fired up and renewed and just really grateful that there are amazing people doing this work and that like I'm not alone in my own little like oh, I believe in equity and social justice and technology and you know all these things, right? Um, so just really grateful um, to the ISTE Digital Equity PLN, to all of you, um, and to the folks who t have taken time out either to watch in real time or who will watch this later. I just want to say thank you. I'm absolutely honored to be a part of this lineup right here, honey. I'll tell you, little rural assistant superintendent with all of these doctors and so forth, I am honored. So um, you all bring me force me out of my comfort zone. I, I, when I second guess myself, you all make me feel like there's really nothing I can't do or talk about. And I appreciate that push. It really has um, grown me. So I want to thank you all so much. So I'm a transition girl. <laughs> so I will say ditto and thank you. I'm uh, humbled and honored to be part of the conversation. And um, thank you guys for everything you do and, and the opportunity, Nicole, to bring us together and Sarah to magically make this all happen. I really appreciate being part of it. Thank you so much, Transition Girl. <laughs> much appreciated. And thank you to all of you on panel. Like I, I really have to say, I learned so much from, from each of you every time that we do this. Uh, so thank you for contributing your time and your wisdom and just uh, sharing and, and being so forthcoming with, with, with all of this information that's really enriched you. Thank you for listening to the first part of our Addressing Digital Equity in Teacher Preparation podcast series, brought to you by the ISTE Digital Equity Professional Learning Network. Please join us for more upcoming episodes as we continue to address the digital equity needs for all.